Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Uh, President Biden is off at the uh, COP26 uh, climate conference. A lot going on in that regard. Meanwhile, you know, big oil is continuing to spread poison around the world, both literally and metaphorically in the form of uh, propaganda about climate change. On the line with us is Richard Wiles, the executive director of the Center for Climate Integrity. Climateintegrity.org is the website. The Twitter handle is Climate Costs. And uh, Richard, welcome back to the program. Uh, tell us about, you've just, you guys just issued a press release. Big oil executives refuse to stop funding climate disinformation at historic congressional hearings. These are the hearings last week, of course, where the Democrats grilled them and the Republicans offered to fluff their pillows under their chairs. Um, uh, tell us about it. Yeah, well, this was the first time that the oil executives had ever testified, the CEOs of the companies had ever testified. Not to mention they were testifying about their uh, decades of climate disinformation. So I think, you know, the highlights are they refuse to stop funding disinformation campaigns. I think it's probably true. We'll see that they, uh, you know, they may have uh, stated some falsehoods on several occasions, uh, denying things, uh, denying knowledge of things that seemed preposterous that they didn't know about. Um, you know, and the, and the committee in the end, uh, that decided actually during the hearing because they were getting such a, you know, sort of a stiff arm from the CEOs and not getting any answers uh, that they needed, uh, they they decided to issue subpoenas uh, to all the companies for all the documents that they had requested prior to the hearing. So I think that was a, a major uh, step forward. We hope. That's yeah, that is a good step, and I didn't realize that that had happened. That's 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 a very good step. So meanwhile, we've got, you know, climate change coming before the Supreme Court. Does Amy Coney Barrett's father, having worked for big oil for 28 years, 29 years as the chief lawyer for Royal Dutch Shell, do you you think that might have any influence on her? Yeah, I think it's kind of obvious that it would. Um, Right at this moment, the cases have mostly cleared their Supreme Court hurdles. I do think, and this is the 27 cases brought against big oil for damages and lying, 
by seven state attorney generals and 20 municipalities. Uh, you know, I think that uh, when these cases do eventually make their way up to the Supreme Court, which it seems very likely that at some point they will, it won't be anytime soon, but I think in the end that that's a, a likely destination. Yeah, I mean, you would, right, you would think if your dad worked for Shell and you sat around the dinner table listening to Shell stories, in fact, I think he was in charge of their uh, offshore drilling yes. operations at one point. The, the legal justification um, you know, for them, yeah. Yeah, you would think that um, you know you'd ha that would bias you in some way. I mean, you know, a lot of people made the case she should recuse herself, and not surprisingly, she didn't in the first round of cases that they heard. So, yeah, we you know this the Supreme Court. I think under any circumstances, it would be difficult for these municipalities and states. On the other hand. You, you know, I can say one thing, after watching these cases for years, you never know. You just never know how things are going to be decided. So, yeah, we're talking we'll to, how it goes. We're talking to Richard Wiles, the executive director of the Center for Climate Integrity. Richard, there is a, a new report out. Uh, this was in The Guardian last week that 89 uh, percent of Democrats accept the scientific consensus on the climate emergency. Uh, whereas only 42 percent of Republicans agree global warming is even a reality. And 36% of Republicans say there's no such thing as global warming. Um, how did this become partisan? How, how is it, why is it in the United States that the majority of Republicans uh, either deny or don't or dismiss the climate crisis? The majority of Democrats are very concerned about it. And are there, you know, it, does this kind of partisan split occur in other nations, other Democratic nations as well, other, other democracies as well? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, you know, the answer to your question is, you know, how do people think that, uh, you know, the, the vaccine is going to implant a microchip in your head? How do you know? How do people think the election was stolen? It's the same disinformation machine that's been running for 40 or 50 years on the right. I mean, it's very effective. There's no counterweight on the progressive side of the ledger. So it's not surprising that if you are literally running decade after decade of disinformation targeting a specific community, specific group of people that you're going to have some effect. And then when you get a president who, you know, Trump, who was just a disinformation machine, it's not surprising um, that, you know, that those people are sort of lost in the wilderness when it comes to anything factual. What was interesting in that poll, though, is that when you change the question around a little bit and ask, should oil companies pay for the damages that they've caused, uh, and particularly after you tell people that they knew and they lied, a la the tobacco companies, you get a significant increase in the number of Republicans that say, yeah, they should pay. Um, hmm. I'll give you a, my best example is that even in the, in the percentage of the survey population that thinks climate change isn't real, a significant portion of those people think that companies should pay for the damages caused by the thing that isn't real. Um, and we saw that same kind of incredibly counterintuitive finding in polling that we've done. And I think it suggests that when you frame climate change as an issue of fairness, um, you can attract even the most, uh, you know, disinformation abused uh, Republicans will come around to that notion of basic fairness, that if someone knows their product is going to basically wipe out your town uh, and then does it anyway, that they ought to pay for that. Now, I'm not saying that, that you're going to get, you know, 80 or 90 percent of Republicans, but you can move some people that would otherwise be sort of, you know, sucked up into this information machine with, with, with basic fairness arguments, particularly as they see, you know, all the damage around you. 
Yeah. So it's, that's a, it's an interesting finding in there that, you know, you don't believe it's real, but you think it's a bad guy should pay. So, so you, know, you Richard, can make that what you will. Richards, what's the latest you're hearing out of the, uh, out of the climate conference in Scotland? Well, I don't think anyone thinks that this is going to be a major breakthrough. You know, we wish that it were, but um, but it. You know, I think um, does we're the, sort of just does the fact that here. neither President Xi nor President Putin have shown up uh, have consequential impact, or might sure that just does. be Absolutely. COVID issues? Yeah, no, come on, that sends the signal that you know they don't really care what people decide they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, you know, Bolsonaro from Brazil saying isn't going to show up. And you know, another great example of the phenomena you said a minute ago where you know, a, a country just divided, right, by a right-wing disinformation machine. Um, yeah, it's very, I think it's significant. Um, you know, it's, it's, the cops have become sort of a, you know, sort of an exercise that you've got to do. Hopefully that we can sort of move the world forward, particularly on methane. If I had to say one thing that might come out of this would be an agreement on methane. And if that's the case, then that would be a big victory. But I don't think anybody's thinking we're going to get substantial uh, uh, progress on carbon emissions out of this meeting. Yeah, we have thousands of of, uh, oil wells, both active and and retired, all across the United States and and, uh, fracking operations and mining operations that are releasing obscene amounts of methane into the atmosphere unnecessarily. Uh, and, and in many cases, they've just been abandoned. Companies have gone out of business. Right. They've walked away from them. Um, what is, the, and, and these are significant contributors to global warming. You know, methane is massively more effective as a global warming uh, agent than carbon dioxide, although it's, it lives much short, you know, a much shorter period of time. So. What is anything being done in the United States? Where is is there any hope around this? Is it going to take a COP26 statement to get something done? Well, a COP26 statement would help, and it'd be more than that. I mean, people are working toward a global agreement, sort of similar to the one that has phased out, uh, you know, CFCs when we saved the ozone layer, or has done similar work under that treaty to. Uh, phase out some uh, potent global warming gases. So I think there's hope for a global agreement on methane. You know, in this country, certainly, again, it's another example of where industry needs to pay for the damage that they're causing. They're going in and just a lot of companies just leave, abandon the wells or sell the wells off to, you know, let's just say a less qualified operator. Um, The companies have responsibility here for these uh, for these leaky wells and these abandoned wells. Um, and, you know, the other thing about it is, you know, there's jobs to be had, to, uh, you know, uh, sealing up those wells that, w- that we definitely need to do. And the industry needs to take uh, responsibility for that and once again be held accountable for the damage they knew they were causing. I love it. A jobs program. Richard Wiles, ClimateIntegrity.org, Climate Costs on Twitter. Richard, Richard thanks for dropping by. Sure. Anytime, Tom. Thanks Good talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. An amazing new series in the Washington Post. I'll tell you about that right after this. I want to point your attention to the Washington Post. And I don't, because I'm a subscriber, I see the entire post and I know that they've got it set up so that some content can be read by everybody and you know particularly all the stuff that has to do with covid and some content can only be read by subscribers and i'm not sure where these these two of the three pieces that they have now published 
fall on that spectrum of uh, availability. But it's even if you're not a subscriber to the Post, it's probably worth checking out. They are doing this series, the three-part deep dive series on January 6th, and drawing these extraordinary conclusions that I think are, are probably where the January 6th select committees in Congress are going to end up. But let me just share a little tiny bit of it with you. I mean, these are long pieces, right? I, I printed them both out, and they both run more than 30 pages printed out. But the first one, warnings of violence before January 6th precipitated the Capitol riot. And they're talking about this guy, uh, Donnell Harvin. Donnell Harvin was the head of intelligence during the Trump administration at the Homeland Security Office in Washington, D.C. And they start out the article, the head of intelligence at D.C.'s Homeland Security Office was growing desperate. For days, Donnell Harvin and his team had spotted increasing signs that supporters of President Donald Trump were planning violence when Congress met to formalize the Electoral College vote, but federal law enforcement agencies did not seem to share his sense of urgency. So on Saturday, January 2nd, they gave you, this is four days before the riot, he, before the insurgency, before the, before, the, before the treason. Let's start calling it that. On Saturday, January 2nd, four days before the treason, he picked up his phone and called his counterpart in San Francisco, uh, waking a guy named Mike Senna before dawn. Uh, Senna organized then a call with a Homeland Security Center. They call them fusion centers, these primary Homeland Security Centers around the country. And there are 80 of them. And officials from nearly all 80 regions, from New York to Guam, logged onto this call. And they were all saying, all over the country, from coast to coast, the centers were blinking red. The hour, date, and location of concern was the same. 1 p.m., U.S. Capitol, January 6th. Back to the Washington Post. Within minutes, an avalanche of new tips began streaming in. Self-styled militias and other extremist groups in the Northeast were circulating radio frequencies to use near the Capitol. In the Midwest, men with violent criminal histories were discussing plans to travel to Washington with weapons. And then they, you know, they, they go through this, uh, you know, that they knew what was happening. This is at the Department of Homeland Security. They were freaking out. They were yelling at the Pentagon. They were yelling at the White House. They were saying, this is coming. And the Trump White House and the Trump, you know, military, uh, essentially police agencies were basically saying, eh, we're not going to do anything. Tough luck. Good luck. Ain't going to happen. They point out in the Washington Post piece, intelligence officials never envisioned a mass attack against the government incited by a sitting president, yet Trump was the driving force at every turn. And then they go through, they break it out, the timeline. They'd come to Washington, Trump tweeted the Saturday before Christmas. Be there, it'd be wild. And then they note his message immediately began to shift the intelligence landscape with the volume of threatening messages about January 6th expanding by the hour. So Trump starts this thing. Then in the second part in the series, what happened on January 6th, Trump stands back as rioters breach the Capitol. President Donald Trump had just returned to the White House from his rally on the Ellipse, goes to the private dining room, flips on a massive flat screen TV to take in the show. The pro-Trump rioters toppled security brigades. They bludgeoned police. They scaled granite walls. And then they smashed windows and doors to breach the hallowed building that has stood for more than two centuries as the seat of American democracy. The Capitol was under siege, and the president 
glued to the television did nothing for 187 minutes. And then they've got this amazing, uh, you know, uh, uh, Congress is talking about subpoenaing Nancy, uh, Kevin, Kevin McCarthy. Nancy Pelosi is talking about subpoenaing him. Here it is. Many others tried to influence the president. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a Trump booster, called him and said, you have to denounce this. Trump falsely claimed to McCarthy that the rioters were members of Antifa. McCarthy corrected him and said they're Trump supporters. You know what I see, Kevin? Trump said, I see people who are more upset about the election than you are. They like Trump more than you do. McCarthy replies, you've got to hold him. You need to go on TV right now. You need to get on Twitter. You need to call these people off. And Trump says, Kevin, they're not my people. So here's Trump telling the speaker or the, the, well, actually he was the speaker of the House of Representatives, telling the speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, sorry, <laughs> well, maybe he wasn't the speaker at that point in time. Anyhow, the, the leader of the Republicans in the U.S. House say, no, you know, I'm not going to do it because that's Antifa attacking the Capitol. I can't do anything about it. Really? Supporters of President Donald Trump uh, went through, oh, that, that's, a, that's a caption. And it goes on from there. I mean, just the, the, the day by day, blow by blow, Trump just encouraging this constantly, trying to make this happen. And these people were, were set to murder the Vice President of the United States and the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. I said uh, Kevin was. I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. It, was, it shifted a couple of years before that. So, so here you've got this, this all-out assault on the, on the seat of American democracy. And the President of the United States is encouraging the Washington Post, this is just brilliant reporting. And it raises what I think is a fairly important question. Why don't we hold Donald Trump accountable for this? He's the, he's the guy who, who caused it. Kevin in San Antonio. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Good morning. Hey. In 1930s in Germany, they had what they called the racial laws. Was, was that the Nuremberg racial laws or something like that? Anyways, am I wrong in comparing this Texas abortion law and where they're putting bounties out? Uh, am I wrong in comparing the two? Are they similar or am, am no. I way off base? No, yeah, you're, you're way off base. I mean, it, this was an attempt by uh, legal beagles <laughs> to, to figure out how can you end a constitutional right, something the Supreme Court has declared a constitutional right. How can you end that without using the instrument of government to do it? Because you know, the rights can be denied to you by two different kinds of parties. The government can come in and deny you rights, in which case you have a right to sue the government. Um, on the other hand, an individual can deny you rights. Uh, the, the, the example most people are familiar with is, uh, you know, when a, a minority gets uh, murdered, for example, by, by a bigot, uh, you know, whether it's a racial or gender minority. Um, then the, the federal government can come in, and if the state is not prosecuting the, the killer, uh, or, or even, you know, not even necessarily killed, harmed, uh, if, if the state is not prosecuting the perpetrator, the federal government can come in and say, 
uh, prosecute them for denying the civil rights of that person, the right to life in this case. Um, but, uh, and, and so what the guys in Texas tried to do is say, okay, we're not going to have the government enforce this rule. It's going to be individual citizens. And so then when, if an, an, an individual citizen applies for that $10,000 bounty, you know, starts a, a lawsuit, essentially they're the, they are the agent which is denying the right now. And, and the, the theory is that the, you know, if somebody could sue them for trying to deny them their rights, but they may not win. And so the abortion providers are afraid of getting into that legal morass, basically. It's, this is just a, you know, they're, they're trying to get around it. And, and I, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to uphold it. And I don't think the Supreme Court is going to uphold it because this could be used against gun rights, as Brett Kavanaugh pointed out in the oral arguments. You know, I, the governor actually said this is going to prevent rape. What? Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm just flabbergasted. Yeah, that because the, all of a sudden rapists are going to be really concerned that the women they rape can't get abortions, and so they're going to stop raping women. Now, this is this is how crazy uh, people are in your state, Kevin. I mean, you live in San Antonio. You know what I'm talking about here. Oh, I'm, I'm, that's why uh, I came up with a uh, comparison to the. Yeah, uh, I don't think you law. have to reach all the way to, to Nazi Germany. Uh, to, you know, this, this is this is just another example of, of you know, crazy stretch the law stuff to try to try to accomplish something that most people don't want to be accomplished. Kevin, thanks for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
the line with us, the host of Bill Press Pods, the author of 10 books, Trump Must Go, and from the left, he was uh, also an aide to Jerry Brown when he was and chair of the California Democratic Party in the 90s, hosted the long-running Bill Press Show on radio and continues a weekly column for The Hill uh, and a syndicated column for Tribune Media. BillPressPods.com is the website. Bill Press Pod is the Twitter handle. And here is Bill Press, pod person. Hey, Bill. <laughs> Tom, how are you? It's been too damn long. Good I agree. I agree. So yeah. Joe Manchin has given a speech, and he basically said, uh, you Democrats, you progressives in the House, you need to stop holding the Biff bill. This is the uh, Republican, Democrat, so-called bipartisan non-reconciliation bill that they've already passed in the Senate. He says, you need to stop holding that hostage. And if you think holding it hostage is going to get me to change my tune on on the reconciliation bill, you're wrong. I'm, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, but basically he's uh, he's calling the uh, progressives bluff. What, how, how do you think this is going to play out? Yeah, look, first of all, I do think maybe I'm the eternal optimist, Tom. I think in the end we're going to get both bills. We're going to get a hard infrastructure bill. We're going to get a human infrastructure bill. But damn it. Joe Manchin, look, if he doesn't, if he wants progressives to vote on the BIF, right, the hard infrastructure bill, roads and bridges and highways and stuff, all he's got to do is say, and I'll vote for the other bill. No, he just he he did not say that. He said, I will continue I know, I to said, work on it. Right. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I'm saying he will not say that. Now, I happen to think that the progressives should, last week when Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi both encouraged them to hold a vote just on that hard infrastructure. I think they should have done it, but I understand why they didn't. You know why? They can't trust, they don't trust Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And yeah. Tom, you can't blame them for not trusting those two, right? Yeah. And, and look at Manchin today. He could end it all today. Here's Joe Biden on the world stage. Joe Manchin could end it all today, but he's so wrapped up in his own West Virginia funk right, that he won't do it. Pisses me off. Yeah, but it's not, it's not West Virginia. I mean, the majority of West Virginians want the stuff that is in the reconciliation yeah. bill. It's it's the fact that, you know, he owns a, a couple of uh, coal companies. He makes over yeah. a million bucks a year from coal. He's got the fossil fuel industry. Him and Kirsten Sinema are taking uh, lobbyist donations at three times the rate of any of their colleagues right now. Just these two. And they're not even up for yeah. re-election. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Which, brings, no, which brings me to the second issue. I'm <laughs> beginning to think that Kirsten Sinema I mean, over the last couple of months, the the uh, drumbeat that I keep getting is that she is getting closer and closer and closer to the Charles Koch, uh, you know, the, the Koch network, the right wing billionaires. Uh, they're inviting her to things. They're showering money on her. The Republicans are running ads praising her in Arizona. Um, she and, and the polls are showing that she would lose a primary to a progressive Democrat. I'm thinking that she's going to run as a Republican next time, and I'm wondering when she's going to flip. I'm hoping it doesn't happen in the next uh, year. What do you think? Uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, I just want to agree with you. I, would, I did not mean to disparage the people of West Virginia. In fact, West Virginia would benefit probably as a state more from this, this, this infrastructure bill 
the Build Back Better bill than any other state. So but Manchin is not representing his people, Tom. You're absolutely right. Look, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if cinema, cinema flips. She started out as a liberal Democrat, or at least progressive Democrat, right? Now, who the hell knows what she is? She says she's still a Democrat. She could easily move and be a Republican. I don't think she's a Democrat. I think she's, in effect, a Republican right now. I think at, she's at Roseanne Barr, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's Roseanne Barr started yeah. out as a Green. She started out, in fact, go. she started out to the left yeah. of the Greens. Um, then she, you know, she tried to run for office as a Green and failed. And then she right. tried to become a Democrat and failed. Yeah. And then she ran for president. Uh, you know, uh, I'm forgetting exactly what she ran for. But eventually she became a Trumpkin. And, and, and yeah. at every stage, I believe that she just made the choice, what's going to get me the most time on television? What's going to get me the most publicity? What's going to work you best to it. my advantage? And I think yeah. that that is the story of Kirsten Cinema and her political career. Uh, Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, no, 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 you're not wrong. Absolutely right. And all I pray for is a strong Democratic opponent to Kirsten Cinema if she runs again as a Democrat. But that's Meanwhile, in four years. By the way, she's, she, that's, that's the problem. I was going to say, meanwhile, she's hurting Mark Kelly, right, who's up for re-election this year. All this, all these games that she's playing and all this backstabbing she's doing to Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the Democratic Party is not helping Mark Kelly at all. No, she's, as far as I'm concerned, maybe we'd be better off if she did become a Republican. I mean, I hate to say that, but. Not immediately. It would, it would blow up the ability of the Senate to That's even get Joe Biden. I mean, you've got, yeah. most of our yeah. ambassador positions are empty. We've got judges stacking up. This is the exact same thing that happened under Obama. Well, you know, and, yeah. and if Mitch McConnell takes over the Senate, boy, are we going to be screwed. Yeah. And, you know, on that point, Tom, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the fact that the Democrats, rightfully so, I think, that the Democrats controlling the White House, the Senate, and the House have not been able to pass these two infrastructure bills. But you've got to give them credit for at least being in the game and trying to do something. The damn Republicans have opted out, right? They are A-W-L-L. They don't care about anything. Child care, housing, universal pre-K, education, climate change, none of it. They have said no matter how big it is, no, no matter what's in it, they're going to vote against it. Yeah. I mean, that this is their version of governing. I mean, give me a break, right? So, so Bill, you you are. Uh, I, I described you earlier as one of the ultimate DC insiders. I mean, you you know everybody in that city. You know what's going on. You've lived there forever. You've been a reporter. Uh, I mean, you, you used to be the head of the Democratic Party in California back in the day. Um, I, what what is your sense? of what the next couple of years are going to bring. We've got these, these you got this Trump neo-fascist faction that is, you know, using racism and, and, and homophobia, transphobia, all hatred, basically, as a political weapon. You've got a few remaining Republicans. Uh, I mean, now Adam Kinzinger says he's not going to run. Of course, he got redistricted, redistricted out anyway. But, um, you know, you've got uh, the Republican Party going through a, a major metamorphosis or transformation. And the Democratic Party is also in a major transition. I mean, the progressives for the first time since the 1970s have major power in the Democratic Party at the national level. Um, where does this all go? It's, it seems to me that if the, if the current incarnation of the Republican Party seizes power again, it might be the end of the American experiment. Is that hyperbole? 
I don't think it is. Uh, I am not as, maybe as pessimistic as you, but I do think that the critical question facing the country right now, one of the most, certainly, is the direction of the Republican Party. I'm sure you've talked to I interviewed Christine Todd Whitman uh, last week, and you've got people like her, people like Liz Cheney, people like Bill Kristol, um, who are really, and Adam Kinzinger, even though he won't be in Congress any longer, really are trying to get the Republican Party back to being a common-sense, at least, opposition party. Uh, and I think whether they succeed or not is going to determine, perhaps, the, the survival of our democracy. Tom, I think we're in a real crunch, in a real crisis. I do believe we'll come out of it okay. I think our institutions will survive. I think that in the, in the short term, uh, as I said, I think we're going to get two uh, infrastructure bills by the end of November, anyhow, by Thanksgiving, let's say. Uh, and by the way, Tom, I'm sure you point out to your listeners, if Joe Biden gets those two bills, even in their reduced form, that's $5 trillion in new programs that he will have put in place in his first 11 months in office, which is more than FDR and LBJ did combined in their first year. So, you know, that's something. I think if they get that done, then Democrats will have something to run on in 2022. I don't believe that it's that Republicans are going to take over the House in 2022. And I don't believe Donald Trump, even if he runs, could get reelected in 2024. Yeah, I well, I'm with you on Trump not getting reelected. I, I think you're going to get a different fascist in there on the Republican side. <laughs> but uh, we'll see where all this shakes out. The legendary Bill Press and his uh, his great pods over at BillPressPods.com. The Twitter handle, Bill Press Pod. Uh, happy potting, Bill. <laughs> All right. <laughs> keep, up the, keep, keep up the great podcast. Okay, thanks a lot. Great talking with Bill Press. Let's get into all this stuff here. George in Portland, Oregon. Hey, George, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I saw a clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene on TV sort of admitting her role in January 6th and sort of proudly proclaiming that, you know, it's part of the American patriot, <laughs> the history of American patriots, you know, to to fight when, when we're wronged. And I think that's going to be their defense. Basically, yeah, we did that because you stole an election, you know. Yeah. Do they think the American government is now Great Britain? Is that the deal? I think so. That's what they're comparing it to. Yeah. Well, the election wasn't stolen. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge, it's a monstrous lie that is being used to, to, to tear apart our democracy. And I guarantee you there are autocrats around the world who are amplifying this stuff on social media and loving it. Oh, yeah. Democracy? No. America doesn't need no stinking democracy. David in Los Angeles. Hey, David. Hey, Tom. It's been a little while. I'll take two of our most 20th century outstanding uh, personalities out of our community, and that would be Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Now, Martin Luther King, at the end of his life, he pretty much made the statement that I have integrated you into a burning house, right? Mm -hmm. That is not readily known. But what's known about Malcolm X is that his um, um, thing that ingratiates him into popular uh, historical acceptance is that he was more into the possibility of integration. Um, so now you have these two dynamics, or 
they would be held up in high esteem in our community. Now, like Malcolm, I did my rite of passage, like a you know, it's a young black wayward youth in the nation of Islam, hmm. right? Now, what you have with Malcolm X is a manifestation of something to which I think the nation of Islam is really uh, um, condemned for and uh, dismissed as a social reform organization. Now, since the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, the black community has been going down, down, down for the social, um, personal responsibility and reform. There's nothing in comparison, right? But we overlook that which the Nation of Islam did because we are of the misconception that it was about separation and racism. Now, Tom, I, th- I think as you can gather, I'm not a racist. I consider you a brother in, in seeking and evolving in truth, right? It goes back to our ancient teaching, know thyself. And that's what made Malcolm successful. Now, all of this nonsense about uh, Nation of Islam and segregation, and that was his primary thrust. No. Malcolm knew because he was son over to the Middle East long before the story, as it is put forth with Alex Haley and him, way before. And we also had, out of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's mouth, that to respect and to honor those who respect you, regardless to what their complexion is. Hence, if you look at Master Farad Muhammad, he was like Caucasian in, in appearance. Yeah. So David, David I, I, you know, the history lesson is fascinating, so but what's the point you're making? My point is, what can we do? Right. right. I'm putting forth to you and your listening audience to go back and revisit the reform movement of the Nation of Islam and its effectiveness in the black community. If you can get past all of the hype and propaganda about all of this segregation, racist boulder dash. Yeah. But, you know, getting, which was, you know, very much when it was Louis Farrakhan, I mean, there was, there was a big chunk of that segregation boulder dash. Well, no, so, not actually. If you, if you can, if you can get past, now we had opposition at that so, time. So what is the good and stuff that needs to be done here, David, I that you learned from nation of We got to get the black people here in the, specifically here in the United States. We need to get to a knowledge of ourselves and even the desire to have a knowledge of ourselves before we're going to make any kind of sustained progress. Because we are operating as though we're deaf, dumb, and blind. No, I, I, we I, don't I, even know what our interests are. Okay, I get, I get so, that, David, but you know, it, it's, it, it's, and I realize I'm, an, I'm kind of an outsider in this, and, and, and so my view is very, no doubt, very myopic. So, but, but I know but for it's, you, Tom, it's, you could study this out and come into um, where um, seeking will get you to, as opposed to being locked in on a um, whatever point. I see you as a seeker, but, and as a result, take it take it out of race for a second. Principle. Just just you know, yeah. here's another example that, that seems to me kind of analogous, and you can tell me whether I'm crazy with this. You've got average working people in the United States of all races 
who are saying, we have not seen a raise since 1980. Uh, we have not seen a raise since this massive tax cut by Reagan and then Bush and then Bush and then Trump. And, and the more tax cuts, the lower wages go for average working people and the more money goes to rich people. And the rich people are standing around saying to the working class people, y'all need to lift yourselves up by your own bootstraps. And the working class people are saying, how do we do that when you've got all the bootstraps? And it yeah. seems to me like saying to, to black people in the United States, or any minority for that matter, but particularly black people who are more often than not draw the, the shortest end of the stick in the, in the racial politics of this country, just to say, you all have to fix this within your own communities. You've got to, you know, well, yeah, of course, you know, we're all going to do whatever we can, just like working people are going to try to unionize and strike and stuff. They're going to make some demands. But but at the end of the day, it's going to take everybody just, you know, we've to solve the economic problems. We need rich people to pay their taxes to save the save the solve the racial problems. We need white people who have all the power to, to start sharing that power. And by the way, they're not going to lose as a consequence of that. If we have a more inclusive, more functional, more multiracial democracy, we can all be happier together. It seems to me. But, you know, Tom, I totally agree with everything you just said. But the thing that keeps us um, lagging with most of the other groups, they have a degree of national and racial cohesion. Well, there's also we history there, David. You know, black people in the United States, this is my whole rant a couple of months ago about, you know, Europeans 3,000 years ago had their entire history ripped away from them, including their language and their religions. That did not yeah. so much happen. Well, it did to some extent, but, but by and large, it did not happen to Asians coming here. It didn't happen to Hispanics coming here. Um, it, you know, it, this, was, this was something unique to the experience of African-Americans. I get that. Yeah. And so now, as a result of that, this is what only we can rectify, right? But now, on the other hand, all of what you just said furthers um, as a society, as a nation, if we are to survive, right, we are going to have to reconcile this inequity. Yeah. I mean, starting back from the inception, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Shay's Rebellion, right? Oh, yeah. But it's not... Now, Shay's, Re oh, Shay's Rebellion was our ruling class, which included, and we got to tell our history as it is, George Washington and all of the so-called founding fathers after the Civil War. Shay's Rebellion was primarily white farmers and white citizens who fought in the Revolutionary War who was given the shaft after it was over. Yep. Is that right? That is, yeah. And so the whole history of this place has always been about divine and conquer in our elite class rule over us with such um with such skill yeah, yeah. right well and it's we and it's always wound up in the position where we are fighting against one another against crumbs yeah and and that's exactly where they want all of us whether we're talking about working class white people or whether we're talking about black people and and you know suffering oppression david thank you Thanks for the analysis and the, and the history lesson. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. My rant today that I published over at HartmanReport.com is titled, Are Trump and His Coronies Guilty of Mass Murder? Seriously. I mean, all across America this past year and a half, 700,000 plus people have died in agonizing, terrifying, drowning in their own fluids death. Their relatives helpless, saying goodbye using Zoom or FaceTime. Families are broken and shattered. Husbands, wives, children, grandchildren left bereft. Doctors, nurses, and, 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 uh, and physician assistants dying along with them or holding their hands as they drew their final tortured breath. Many of these deaths were absolutely unnecessary. They happened because of very specific decisions made by a small group of people led by Donald Trump. Now, if you or I made any decision at all that led to the death of another person, we'd be on our way to prison. Case in point, you're driving down the street and you decide to send a text message while you're driving. And because you're not looking up, you hit some poor guy and kill him. You go to prison. Trump not only caused 130,000 Americans to die, and that's according to Deborah Burks. It's probably the most conservative number out there. But he did it, and I'm going to build this case. You've heard this before, but I think it's important to summarize it again in one piece. Um, but he did it because he believed that he could blame the deaths on blue state governors, on Democratic governors, and because the majority of the deaths were happening to black people. I think this is murder. By the definition of murder in the state of Florida, which I published in the article here, I won't read the whole thing to you, but, but it, it, this is clearly murder. Perpetrated by any act imminently dangerous to another and evincing a depraved mind regardless of human life. Well, there you go. From the first case of COVID on January 20th, 2020, until April 7th of 2020, for four months, Donald Trump and his team actually were trying to do something about the COVID pandemic. He put medical doctors on TV every day. The media was freaking out about refrigerated trucks carrying bodies away from New York hospitals. Doctors and nurses were our new national heroes. Remember this? 
By March 7th, U.S. deaths had risen from only four to only 22. But that was enough to create federal action. Trump's official emergency declaration came on March 11th. And it shut down most of the country. The Dow collapsed. Millions of Americans were laid off. But hey, we were trying to save lives, right? Jared Kushner put together an all-volunteer task force of mostly preppy 30-something young white men to coordinate getting PPE to hospitals. You know, they even had a plan for the post office to distribute 650 million masks, five to every American household to stop the pandemic. And then came April 7th. April 7th, when the New York Times ran a front page story with the headline, Black Americans Face Alarming Rates of Coronavirus Infection in Some States. Other media ran similar headlines all across the American media landscape that day. It was heavily reported on cable news and network news. Turns out most of the non-elderly people dying from COVID were black or Hispanic, not white people. And that very day, April 7th, when that was the lead news story on every media in the country, April 7th, 2020, Rush Limbaugh declared, uh, with the coronavirus, I have been waiting for the racial component, and here it is. The coronavirus now hits African Americans harder. Harder than illegal aliens, harder than women. It hits African Americans harder than anybody. Disproportionate representation. Now, it doesn't take a medical genius to figure out why any disease hits African Americans harder than white people and even Hispanics, because 400 years of institutional racism has conspired to prevent African Americans from having either the wealth or the access to health care that wealth can provide to have good, good health care. I mean, you know, it's fairly straightforward. It's the reason why 12 Republican-controlled states have continued to refuse to expand Medicaid because they have large black populations and they don't want people, people of color to have, have health care. But, you know, that didn't matter to, <laughs> I mean, the right wing didn't even think of that. They just thought, oh, it must be some kind of a race thing. Black people die from COVID, white people don't. And so that night, April 7th, Tucker Carlson went on TV and said, oh, look at this. We can, uh, that's my phrase. Now, here's a quote from him, quote, we can begin to consider how to improve the lives of the rest. The countless Americans who've been grievously hurt by this, by our response to this. How do we get 17 million of our most vulnerable citizens back to work? That's our task. He's talking about white people who need a job. White people are out of work. Black people were most of the casualties outside of the extremely elderly. Those white people needed their jobs back. Britt Hume joined Tucker Carlson that night, April 7th, and said, well, the disease turned out to not be quite as dangerous as we thought. Unspoken, dangerous for white people. 12,677 Americans were dead on April 7th. But now that Trump knew that they were mostly black people outside of the folks who were dying in nursing homes, it was time to quit talking about people dying and start talking about getting back to work. And it took Donald Trump less than a week to get the memo. On April 12th, he retweeted a call to fire Dr. Fauci. And in another tweet, declared that he had sole authority to open the U.S. back up. On April 13th, the ultra-right-wing and entirely, pretty much entirely white-managed U.S. Chamber of Commerce published a policy paper titled 
implementing a national return to work plan. The next day, FreedomWorks, you know, the billionaire founded and funded group that animated the Tea Party against Obamacare 10 years ago. They published an op-ed on their website calling for an economic recovery and a shield for businesses from lawsuits. Three days after that, FreedomWorks and the House Freedom Caucus, I call them the Cokehead Caucus, issued a joint statement declaring it's time to reopen the economy. They published their Reopen America plan Rally Planning Guide. It's still, it's still active. I've got a link to it in my article today. They said, show up in person at your state capitals and governor's mansions for your signage. Quote, keep it short. Things like, I'm essential. Let me work. Let me feed my family. And keep the signs looking homemade. The first rally, the first Open the Country rally that Freedom Works put together was April 19th in New Hampshire. Over the next several weeks, there were rallies in Oregon, Arizona, Delaware, North Carolina, Virginia, Illinois, and elsewhere. They were complete with swastikas, Confederate flags, and assault rifles. In fact, the number one one that got the media was when they did it to, to Gretchen Carlson, the Gretchen Carlson, the uh, governor of Michigan. NBC News ran the headline. They got a hold of an email that month from the White House to, to Louis DeJoy. Trump administration scrapped plan to send every American a mask in April, email shows, was the headline over on NBC News. When Rachel Maddow pointed out that the meatpacking plants were epicenters of the, of the virus infection because people were working so close to each other, the Chief Justice of the Wisconsin Supreme Court said, oh, that virus flare is not coming from regular folks. It's not white people who are getting sick in the meatpacking plants. It's the Hispanic and black people. The conservative meme, meme was now, this is just the end of April, the conservative meme was now well established. And what did Trump do? He issued an executive order forcing the black and Hispanic people back to work in the meatpacking plants. Remember that? He wouldn't use the, the Defense Production Act to make PPE. He wouldn't use it to make test kits or vaccine, but no, no, he did use it to send Hispanic and black people back to work. And then you get Jared Kushner's expert COVID team. This was uh, Catherine Eban over at Vanity Fair reported, quote, the political folks believed that because it was going to, the, the pandemic was going to be relegated to democratic states that they could blame those governors and that would be an effective strategy. Robert F. Kennedy Sr.'s grandson, Max Kennedy, was one of the volunteers who worked with Kushner. Jane Mayer wrote for the New Yorker, quote, Kennedy was disgusted to see that the political appointees who supervised him were hailing Trump as a marketing genius because, Kennedy said they told him, Trump personally came up with a strategy of blaming the blue states. Remember back then, it was, uh, the virus was pretty much exclusively in large part in Washington state, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. By the end of the year, we ranked fifth worst in the world behind Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, and Iran. We had 20% of the world's COVID deaths. We're only 4% of the world's population. Why? Because Trump said, hey, it's only black people dying and we can blame it on blue state governors. How is that not murder? How could anyone think that at the very least, this is negligent homicide? 
and it sure looks like negligent murder to me. Sweden has put together a commission to look into their government's response to it. In Brazil, the Senate has compiled a thousand page report and said that Bolsonaro should be held guilty of crimes against humanity, of mass slaughter. And here in America, there's no major national commission, no special prosecutor looking into what happened. Now, if Obama had been president, you know what would have happened. They spent four years in multiple hearings, you know, looking at four American deaths in Benghazi. They took thousands of hours of testimony. With, with Ken Starr, he had a $70 million budget, and him and, and Brett Kavanaugh spent four years going after Bill Clinton for getting a BJ from Monica Lewinsky. And Newt Dick Gingrich said that endangers the survival of the American system of justice. Come on. Schumer and Pelosi need to put select committees on this, and Merrick Garland needs to empower and panel a special prosecutor with a grand jury. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And if it can be proven that Trump and his buddies like Scott Atlas let these people die because they thought it would help them politically, people need to go to prison. What say you? Okay, there's a bunch of other stuff going on as well uh, as my call to prosecute Donald Trump and Jared Kushner and, and uh, Scott Atlas and his merry band for, for, at the very least, involuntary manslaughter, at the very most, crimes against humanity. But in addition to this, now you've got this right-wing echoes chamber. Brian Stelter is writing over at CNN Business about this. I think this is fascinating. He, his argument is that if it wasn't for Fox News, there's no way that Glenn Youngkin would even have a chance in Virginia against Terry McAuliffe. By the way, there was an interesting piece in the Washington Post pointing out the white vote hasn't changed much from, from a year ago. What has happened is that the Hispanic vote is shifting toward the Republican Party. I have been yelling about this for the better part of four or five years now Right-wing Hispanic radio, Spanish-language radio, right-wing Spanish-language radio is on the rise. Now, I don't know specifically if there are right-wing Spanish-language radio stations in Virginia, but I'd be astonished if there weren't. They're popping up all over the United States, and Democrats are sitting around going, gee, we can't figure out why these... Why these Hispanic folks, why these, uh, you know, people who, have, who, who are bilingual, they speak Spanish and they listen to Spanish radio from time to time, why, why are they suddenly voting Republican? Can't figure it out. But you got that, and then, of course, Fox, I mean, they're, they're pointing out that just Fox News has mentioned Loudoun County, Virginia, 450 times on Fox News so far this year. They've mentioned uh, Fairfax County more than 200 times. This is what you get when you've got a television or radio network that works hand in glove with a political party. And Democrats haven't figured this out yet. Which is crazy. Which is absolutely crazy. And then on top of that, it's like somebody is uh, screwing with things. I mentioned Spanish language. Apparently somebody in the Pennsylvania I don't know if it's the printer. We, the last time this happened, it turned out it was the print shop, and it was a print shop that had a giant Donald Trump flag out front, and they had printed ballots that had the wrong date on them. Remember that last year? It was a big scandal. Well, this is in Pennsylvania. I don't recall if when it happened last year it was Pennsylvania or not. If you, if you recall, you know, let me know. Give me a call. But in, in Pennsylvania, 
the Spanish language ballots that went to 17,000 Spanish language voters in Berks County, Berks County, by the way, very democratic, tell them that the election is two weeks from now. There's a voting advocacy group, Make the Road Pennsylvania, and they are frantically trying to call, text, knock on doors in Spanish-speaking neighborhoods of citizens to say, hey, wait a minute, you got, you know, the printer screwed this thing up. Was it the printer? Didn't somebody in the Secretary of State's office or the county, uh, whatever the elections officials, county office is called in Pennsylvania, didn't somebody there sign off on it? Didn't they have an image of what was going to be printed before it was printed? Who's responsible for this? Inquiring minds want to know. I smell a rat. But then there are folks who say I tend toward paranoia. I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'm just observant, but I smell a rat anyway. It's the, the place where despair is not an option. We will get through this, but damn, what a fight we've got. David in Pittsburgh. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? I'm tired of hearing these congressmen. When you ask them a question, they go to a complete script answer. Yeah. The other issue I have is with the uh, pharmaceutical drug build back a better America procedure. They totally pushed aside the uh, negotiations for your pharmaceutical drugs. The VA negotiates their pharmacy uh, medications, but we can't do it with the Medicare Act. Right. We've been fighting this bill for almost 15, 20 years now to get that bill passed, yep. and it hasn't gone through Congress. Yep. I'm tired of hearing about they're, they're not going to do it. It's, it is still there as of this moment in the House version, but they're talking about stripping it out. You're absolutely right, David, and I completely agree with you. And this is an abomination. I mean, it's just it's just wrong. And it, it's been 18 years. It was 2003 when George W. Bush, you know, signed the law to say that Medicare has to pay full retail instead of negotiating. I'm with you. David, well said. Thank you. John in Boulder. Hey, John, what's up? I discovered a mathematically proven universal law that's the underlying principle of justice, democracy, equality and universal peace. And it says that all systems function most efficiently without unnecessary resistance. And just about everything is a system. So, you know, it affects everything. There's okay. a whole lot to that. Got it. The E equals MC squared of our era. Thank you, John. A lot of great conversations today. Thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.